it's so clear how important reaching customers directly through e-commerce can be for your company. How well do you really understand it? If you're thinking about selling your customers online direct to consumer, you're not sure if you should start selling through Amazon, your own website, smaller third-party marketplace, this is the episode for you. We'll also discuss if e-commerce can even be profitable for your business because it's 2020, seems like a no-brainer, and yet maybe there are other things you should be thinking about before launching directly into walmart.com. I've got e-commerce and growth marketing experts Rachel Barge and Kate Lynn to discuss strategies for reaching your customers directly. Start smaller. Go for those long-tail niche keywords that people will convert at a very high rate for you. We talk to so many clients who want to go immediately to their main categories. Start smaller. Kate Lynn is a marketing strategist at Right Side Up. She advises companies on how to unlock additional revenue from early stage ventures to Fortune 500 companies. Rachel Borge is the founder of LeapGrow, a group of freelance marketers, and she doesn't mess around when it comes to growing revenue. Wow, I woke up and we had several thousand dollars of revenue in the store before we even got up and did our organic social media posts and before our ads really started serving. Rachel has also served as the head of growth or the head of marketing for companies like HipCamp, Yertle, and Gig Car Share, just to name a few. It's a three-way conversation, so people who are just learning can follow along, and if you're a little more advanced and you understand growth and marketing a little more, you'll find this episode pretty helpful too. Thank you so much, Rachel and Kate, for joining me. Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience or why you think this topic is so important and what you think we can cover in in, in a short time? Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me, Amanda. I love the startup CBG community and I love all the different entrepreneurs that I've met that are working really hard to build their businesses. And, you know, pre-COVID folks were out there you know, winning food service contracts, you know, talking to grocery store buyers, um, some of them were doing D2C. And really, like part of why we decided to sort of create this topic for, as a podcast is because when COVID hit, a huge number of startups in the community basically saw their enti- entire channels just dry up. Restaurants and food service no- shutting down all contracts, grocery store buying saying we're not introducing new products. And for a lot of these startups, that was their main strategy to how to sort of get their product in market and start to grow. And so we saw a huge increase in folks being interested in going direct to consumer, but having a lot of questions about what does that look like and how should I do it? And should I do it on Amazon or should I do it on Thrive Marketplace or should I do it on my own website? And we wanted to kind of create a resource to help people think through that. I am a D2C growth marketer specifically focused on helping people sell on their own website. And I've done that across a ton of different product categories whether it's food or telemedicine or fintech, marketplaces of experiences. I've helped a number of different types of products sell online. And so I'm really energized to sort of help the startup CBG community and especially food entrepreneurs really evaluate this space to see if it's right for their business. Thank you so much, Rachel. So excited to have your expertise today. And Kate, how are you dealing with this moment right now? And what do you really want to share with our listeners? Yeah, just to echo a lot of what Rachel is saying, we've been working with a lot of CBG companies who you know, really seeing their business model need to adapt to the current moment and really looking to, to launch themselves. So I come from direct-to-consumer growth background as well for six to seven years from big companies doing retail and apparel to startups selling all kinds of things from luxury bedding to 
Pet Food. I've really been collaborating closely on the Amazon side of the business here at Right Set Up for the last year and starting to, you know, start to realize the, the power of it. So I'm super excited to be on this podcast and, and talk th- things through with uh, Rachel and yourself. I think another thing that's coming up is a lot of a lot of shifts that are coming to light as a result of COVID are actually things that maybe needed to happen in the first place and are regardless of 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 if we go back to normal are still really important skills or tools to have in your pocket when launching a business would you agree yeah i I think that's really right amanda and and one of the things that we see that startups especially this could relate to any business but you know food startups especially really understanding your cost of goods sold your cogs in whatever format you may sell it on you know maybe you were depending completely on grocery. And you were like, I know what it takes for me to produce this item. I know what it takes for me to put it on a pallet and ship it to a distribution center for that grocery or to the distributor that the grocery works with. I know my pricing scheme for what how it needs to be sold in store. But we saw for a lot of companies, they didn't have a financial model for how they, whether they could sell it independently, whether that's on their own site or through Amazon, um, and could that be profitable? And so they kind of started at zero and had to quickly kind of figure out, okay, what would it look like for me to sell individual (laughs) amounts of this? What types of distributors would I need to work with to sell online? And so I think that's something where being prepared to move into another channel is an important de-risking strategy, I think, as a company. And I understand why you wouldn't have that ready if you nobody predicted a global pandemic would come and crash the economy. But you know, mm-hmm. it's 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 a really important to make sure that the financial backbone of your strategy for moving into a channel is vetted because you don't want to unlock a new channel and then have it actually be a money loser rather than a money maker for your business. Yeah, totally. And so D to C, we're maybe being a little too broad when we're calling this direct to consumer, right? Because Rachel, you're going to be talking a little bit more about the actual direct to consumer. When a consumer goes onto your website, they press buy and then you ship directly to the consumer. Whereas Kate, you're going to be talking a little bit more about third party sellers. Your consumer isn't buying you at a grocery store, right? They're not walking in. And so it's a little different than maybe their previous retail channels also a little bit different than the strategies that you need to move forward with and the things that you need to consider are different than when you're just running your own website. Kate, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So I think that's a really great point. And everybody has a different definition to your point of DTC and e-commerce. I would define this topic broadly as e-commerce. So it's business that happens online. So it's not happening in real life. You're interacting completely digitally. Typically, how I like to define it is DTC, which is, as you said, happens on your website, you own that customer relationship, you're talking to them one on one, and then third party marketplaces, Amazon included, where you're really going through an intermediary and you get some customer data if you're lucky, but not not as much as you would through DTC. Absolutely. So that's a great point. Owning your customer relationship. Rachel, can you tell us about the pros of owning your own relationship with the customer and doing D2C on your own website? Yeah, I think owning the customer relationship is one of the most valuable things about selling direct on your own site and really maintaining control of knowing exactly who that customer is, having that customer's email, sometimes having that customer's phone number, being able to run surveys against your customers, potentially just picking up the phone and calling them. Um, especially when you're really young, that th- those types of insights can be just incredibly valuable. And when you build up an email list over time of customers that you own, 
you end up having this massive lever where, you know, a year from now, if you're, if you've been able to grow your email list to 50,000 people, every time you send an email, you're going to get thousands of dollars of sales. When you sell on Amazon or walmart.com or Thrive Marketplace, they're not going to give you that customer's email. They're like, that's my customer. Thank you for putting your product here, but they really don't provide, and you know, Kate could probably speak more specifically to this, but my clients really struggle with a lack of insights, a lack of data regarding who's buying, how they could turn those insights into you know, future growth plans. So that is definitely one downside of selling you know, on a third party versus owning the customer relationship yourself. But I will say that a huge upside that those marketplaces provide that you won't have on your own site is the fact that they already have traffic. Every single day, tens of millions of people are going to amazon.com and opening up the Amazon app ready to buy. They already have purchase intent. They're coming in and they know what they want and they're just doing the, lot, the last little bit of research to find the exact product and buy it. And you will not have that on your own site. And that's a massive difference. Totally. So a pro of D2C is you own the customer relationship. A con is you have to drive your own traffic. So what are some ways that you can drive your own traffic? That's a great question. You know, I sort of think of these things in two sort of fundamental camps. One are a set of things that we would call organic, or they basically don't require media budget um, or direct spending in order to drive traffic. And those things would include your organic social media channels. If you, you know, do your own PR in-house and you just sort of reach out to reporters and try to earn press then the press hits you're getting, I would consider organic. Maybe you reach out to influencers and send them product and get reviews and get testimonials online. That's an organic strategy. So like I define organic as anything where you're not paying for each individual sort of impression on the internet. And then the other side of the house is what you would call your paid channels. So that's putting up ads on Google for people searching for your product category. It's um, running Facebook ads. It's maybe having a more programmatic way of working with influencers where you're like paying per post and you're doing it at a larger scale. Maybe you have, you know, an affiliate channel where you work with a network of bloggers and YouTubers who earn a commission on every sale that they are able to drive for you. And so I really specialize in the paid side of growth and driving traffic, mainly because in my experience as an in-house marketer for many different startups and now a consultant, the paid side of the house is really, it's like the most immediately reliable and dependable in terms of the outcome that you can drive. All the stuff you do to grow your organic traffic. And I should also mention SEO or search engine optimization as like a key strategy on the organic side. All of that stuff, um, it's a real hustle and a grind. And there's not always like an immediate payoff or an immediate return for your effort. So um, it can take you know over a year to get meaningful traffic coming to your website from SEO strategies. You know you can post all day on your organic social media, but if you have a hundred followers, no one's going to really see it. The audience size isn't big enough for people to react. Whereas on the paid side of the world, you can spin up some Facebook ads, put put in a budget that you're comfortable with, and you can be reaching thousands, tens of thousands. You know depending on your budget, millions of people instantly and getting real-time reactions to your product, real-time reactions to your website, understanding how attractive your site is to a brand new person. And um, I really specialize in helping companies you know, grow to scale using paid marketing channels. It's really important to have some complementary efforts happening. And I would never encourage a company to exclusively invest only in paid growth and really um, let all the organic strategies atrophy. It's just that I find that when you're 
starting out and you're really young and you don't have a social media audience, you don't have uh, SEO links, you don't have a real track record, it's very, very hard to drive meaningful results. It's very hard to drive traffic at that point. No one knows your brand at the earliest stage. So, Got it. So when a brand is considering DSC on their website, they really want to connect directly with their customers and they're still in the process of building social media. One of the most effective tools and their secret weapon will be just paying for support, paying for advertisements, paying for things and doing that while maintaining and slowly growing their organic channel. I often find that companies drastically underestimate the cost of driving traffic to their site. Mm. They think like, oh, I I made this beautiful website. I paid a a development firm 30 grand to build this like beautiful Shopify site. I published it. It's out there. And like, why am I getting no sales? It's like, well, because no one's going to your website. Why is no one going to your website? No one knows about you. Building a storefront in, in Wisconsin and wondering why you're not getting the foot traffic of Fifth Avenue in New York. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And so And I think what's also alarming or surprising to early stage entrepreneurs is recognizing that the cost of driving the traffic, when you think about like realistic purchase rates, the realistic conversion rates on your website, for every 100 people that come to your website, how many of them buy? Does only one person buy? Do two people buy? Are you able to get four people to buy? Those would represent, you know, a one, two and 4% conversion rate. It might cost you, you know, $2 per visitor who's coming in, like $2 just to get a single visitor. So if you if you have a 1% conversion rate, that means it costs you $200 to acquire every new customer. Now, maybe you're selling like banana chips that cost $9.99 a bag. You don't want to spend $200 to acquire that customer, but that's not a totally unreasonable cost of customer acquisition when you're starting out. And something I specialize in is really helping get people to to into very healthy conversion rates. So like 48% conversion rates on traffic, and that can bring your cost of acquisition down. But it can be a bit of a shocker for some entrepreneurs that are not familiar with digital marketing. They're like, oh my gosh, I could never spend... I don't want to spend $200 or $100 or $60 per new customer. How am I going to make any money doing this? And so it's it's sort of like a build the airplane, start to fly the wobbly airplane, and then you know supplant your other channels so that over time you have visibility into when it could be profitable. But it's it's almost never going to be profitable right away. Yeah, and also it's really the most successful. The businesses that are going to have the most success with this kind of sales channel are going to be the ones who expect to have repeat customers, loyal customers, because then it makes the acquisition cost of $200 worth it in the lifetime, or maybe over the course of three years, if they're going to spend $1,000 on your site, then it makes a lot more sense than if you think that every customer you acquire might only buy three bags of banana chips. That is 100% right, Amanda. And that's really why I, I often encourage companies. I encourage companies very strongly to consider subscription from the get go, because when you can position and offer your product as a subscription online and and it's not right for every product but i would i often sometimes get an attitude from entrepreneurs that's like well people are just burned out on subscription or like people don't like subscription anymore and it's like i just don't believe that that's true i think that you have to think of subscription as a value add and as a benefit to your consumer if it's like hey let's just take care of this for you like you're never going to have to think about where banana chips come from ever again. Like they're just going to magically come to your door every 30 days. It's one less thing you have to have on the grocery list. It's one less thing you have to think about. And again, not every product is right for it, but if you can position it successfully as subscription um, and make it a huge benefit to your customer, then what ends up happening is that fast forward six months, 
every single day at midnight, a wave of orders are processing that you did nothing to drive. (laughs) Their orders are auto reprocessing. And you're like, wow, I woke up and we had several thousand dollars of revenue in the store before we even got up and did our organic social media posts and before our ads really started serving. Um, And it's hugely beneficial for long-term sustainable revenue. If you're able to actually retain 50% of your customers month over month, in the subscription program, it's it's you really can get to those higher lifetime values that can cover the cost of the initial cost of customer acquisition. Absolutely. And speaking of subscription, customers really got used to subscription models kind of through Amazon. It, it just pops right up. So Kate, maybe you can talk a little bit about Amazon, the pros of Amazon, and actually any other third-party e-commerce retailer. It's not just Amazon, mm-hmm. right? I mean, adding on to a lot of what Rachel just said, it's expensive to acquire traffic. So the biggest benefit to Amazon or another third-party marketplace is the built-in customer demand. So when people are searching products on Amazon, they're already ready to purchase. Um, so we often find you know, conversion rates are 10 to 25% on the platform, which is, you know, if you're looking at non-brand search to your direct-to-consumer, a 5% conversion rate is considered great. And, you know, Rachel, as you're trying to get it even higher than that, it's it's best in class. I mean, we're talking amazing. So when we are talking about the benefits of Amazon, of course, there's that. Um, there's the built-in search intent. There's the higher conversion rate. And FBA, which many people use for particularly shelf-stable products, it's going to be cheaper for you to fulfill that product through Amazon than most any other 3PL that you would go through to to fulfill. So there's a lot of benefits there. The drawbacks are, again, kind of similar to what Rachel is saying too around customer data. So there are some ways to extract that from Seller Central, but just to back up, there are multiple relationships that you can enter into with Amazon. So the two biggest main ones being Vendor Central and Seller Central. Vendor Central, we have a lot of clients coming to us and saying, hey, we're getting these like, you know, guaranteed revenues through Amazon. How should we feel about that? Um, And through that relationship, you're essentially selling product to Amazon to then resell. So you lose control of your order data, your customer data, your um, content and your brand, because they're really deciding how your brand is then shown because they're selling it and taking responsibility for that. And oftentimes you're going to see lower margins from that type of relationship as well, but it depends on your product. Um, and then Seller Central is, you know, you, you create your own account, you control your listings, your images, the way that you're presenting yourself. You can really extract customer data through orders, which is what we often do. And then you can put that into Facebook, we target to them, and we get 60% match rates with the customer information that we're getting out of Amazon. A lot of people do think that you can't own customer data through Amazon and, and definitely still they haven't purchased through you, so they're not your customer yet. But at least there's a potential and an opportunity to extract that and try to get them over to your site, typically through some online exclusive SKUs or a loyalty program or something else that can draw them in. And then there is actually a lesser known program on Amazon for subscriptions. It's very underutilized. And so any company that we take onto this subscription program through Amazon is doing six figures of revenue pretty easily with very minimal ad spend. Whereas on the- Whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa. Let's take a moment yeah. there. Can you? <laughs> I know it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that people don't know about that much, you said? Yeah. So there's an Amazon subscription program. Um, it's relatively new and unknown. And there's maybe a few dozen companies that have even signed on to it because of this. And so it takes very little to get conversions through this site. And I mean, also, I understand why people don't. 
Um, usually the companies we work with, they want to do direct-to-consumer and they want to do Amazon. So we typically are saying, okay, well, if that's the strategy, we want to use Amazon as a one-off purchase and then try to funnel them over to your site and then maybe subscribe there. But for you know companies oh, who really don't mind where they're making the sale as long as it's margin positive and they're you know just making it happen, then it can be a really great solution because it is a, a you know an unknown product. So all of these murky conversations and and trade-offs come down to, you know, what are your brand priorities and what are your goals? And given the different trade-offs, you know, what are you looking to do? If you're just looking for revenue and you want to drive as much as you can through any channel that exists, then there's a lot more levers to play with than when you're trying to force a customer journey into a certain direction. Sure. And we we talk a lot about Amazon. What are some other third-party options? Next biggest one that we hear about is walmart.com. A lot of our Clients are on there to some degree. To be very honest, we don't often see Walmart.com ad spend row as positive. For every dollar you put into Walmart ad spend, you're not getting a dollar back in revenue. Oh, interesting. Yes. ROAS is an acronym that stands for return on ad spend. ROAS. ROAS, return on ad spend. Divide revenue by ad spend. Got it. So that's not ideal because you are putting more money in than you're getting back. Exactly. Yeah. So why would someone do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is a great question. And oftentimes we do find that it just bleeds into the retail game. So if they are trying to get specific yeah. placements on the store shelves in Walmart stores, then they have to play a little bit of Walmart.com game, get, throw them some ad spend. Um, and and kind of use it as a retail lever, or they just want to be on it for some, you know, just to capture that audience share. But we really don't recommend it for for companies, especially who are emerging and just don't have the money to just spend just to spend. And if they aren't really trying to get into um, store placements, so if, in that case, we often are trying to get people onto smaller marketplaces like Thrived or Boxed. Um, so those ones are very specifically aligned and, and, you know, niches. And if you can kind of make it work and you can get in, those are, I've been hearing the last few months, super competitive. Both of them have been seeing crazy demand, as you can probably imagine. And their wait list for getting new client, new companies in is, I mean, several months long just for the review process. But those are two that pre-COVID, I'll say, if the product was aligned, we could get clients in pretty easily and they would see really strong revenue for the ad spend they're putting in. And that was which? Thrive and Boxed. Thrive and Boxed. Awesome. So those are alternatives to mm-hmm. Amazon. Um, I'm just I'm just picturing like a, a vegan power bar that's writing in its journal. When I grow up, I want to be on the shelves of Walmart.com. <laughs> or I want to be on the shelves of Walmart retail stores. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. <laughs> I love that. I had a, I actually, from what Kate just said, I, a question popped up for me, which is, Kate, you talk about ad spend on these third-party marketplaces. You know, what sort of scale of ad spend are, do you see your clients doing on third-party marketplaces, and how important is advertising within the marketplace to your success? Because we've talked about how, like, oh, you know, Amazon and Walmart.com, they have all this traffic, so you know, shouldn't you just be able to put your products up there, and then sales will just immediately mm-hmm. start happening? Or like, what does it really take to get traction on the marketplaces? Oh, such a good question and so much nuance to it um, based on our category. But I'll start with the third-party marketplaces that are smaller. So Thrive and Boxed, honestly, we spend very little on those channels for our clients. And it's 
it does very well because, you know, the scale is more limited. So when we talk about growing really big, really fast, those platforms won't be the ones to do that, but they might be a nice, you know, secondary step before attacking the behemoth that is Amazon and, you know, give you a nice little bump and it's, you know, ROAS positive. So you want to be there. When it comes to Amazon, we work with clients across all stages. So from emerging food bands that we're bringing to Amazon for the first time, and that margin is super important to them. And they're really looking to maximize their dollar. In those cases, we honestly keep our on Amazon spend pretty minimal. And what we're actually trying to do is leverage outside traffic campaigns through channels like Facebook to drive sales velocity on Amazon's platform to drive organic rankings. So I know this is kind of a a weird thing, but um, let me break it down. At a very base level, when you search anything on Amazon and you see organic listings pop up, so that's anything that doesn't say sponsored under it, all of those are determined by sales velocity on the back. And so they see how many sales you're driving for that particular keyword in a seven day, 10 day period. And they decide, okay, these ones are really doing well. So they're really relevant and they'll bump you to the top and um, you'll pretty much hold those spots. And so for smaller brands that, you know, they may have five to $10,000 a month to spend in particularly in competitive categories, that's the avenue that we'll usually take for them. For larger brands that are well-known already, they're on direct-to-consumer and, you know, they're maybe multi-million dollar brands, but they just really haven't spent any time on Amazon. In that case, it's really, you know, competitor conquesting, showing up for very specific media spots and very specific keywords. And in that case, on Amazon, advertising is really important. So it really depends on where you are, what your market is, how competitive it is, and um, how much budget you have to, to spend and how quickly you're trying to grow. Got it. Thank you so much, Rachel, for that question. How does that relate to, how does that translate to DDC? Yeah, it's a really good point. You, you might go ahead and launch one of these techniques, but what does it really take to be successful? And like, how do you get that initial traction rolling? I think the question really gets down to what does it take to get initial traction happening in your channel, whether that channel is selling on your own site versus selling on a third party. And, and Kate did a great job breaking that down in terms of how to think about what is required to get the momentum you need to start doing, you know, thousands of dollars of sales in those third-party marketplaces. And when it comes to D2C on your own site, I really am a huge proponent of stepping back and making sure that you've really thought through what is the first-time buyer experience or the first-time user experience on your site. And, you know, we all know how to buy things on Amazon, right? We launch the Amazon app, we go to amazon.com, we go into the search field, we search for something, we scroll we like look at product details and then we decide if we're going to buy it or not. And that's a very standardized buying process. When you're selling something on your own site, I mean, literally the sky's the limit in terms of what that user experience could look like. And I see a huge range of what people put forward, whether that's in a Shopify site or a WordPress WooCommerce site or a Squarespace site. And I find that in many, in most cases, the folks that I get a chance to work with haven't really thought through what they want a consumer to do when they land on their site. And the reason why that's a huge risk and problem is that you work, you spend, you work so hard and you spend your precious dollars getting someone to come to your site. And then if you haven't made it like completely excruciatingly, screamingly clear what you want them to do, guess what? They will probably not do that thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And if you haven't decided what you want them to do, then they're really not going to do that thing. And when I say decided to do, what I mean is how many products do you want them to buy? 
What's the average order value you want them to get to? You know, are you going to offer them free shipping or not? Are you going to offer them some kind of first time customer discount? And thanks for, for coming and shopping in your store. What are you willing to give them? And what do you want them to do in return? That's the fundamental question of the first time user experience. And I really encourage companies to, in a written document, in a Google slide PowerPoint, actually map out the steps. Be like, we want someone to start here. They're going to land on the homepage. We then we want them to read this message. We want them to click this button and go to the shopping collection. We want them to choose their flavor. We want them to read the product attributes. We want them to add exactly four of these things to their cart. We then want them to click initiate checkout. We want them to apply this coupon code. We want them to enter in their details and submit, and then they become a customer. And if you haven't really like thought through how you're going to use motivational cues, urgency, um, and different timing mechanisms to sort of help that process go smoothly and effectively, you're going to have a higher bounce rate. You're going to have a high, a higher like people adding to cart and then not actually checking out rate. And you're going to have a lower e-commerce conversion rate if you haven't really designed that thoughtfully. So that is one of the most important things. I know Kate was talking about traction with sort of getting picked up in the listings and taking advantage of that traffic. And I would say when it comes to D2C, you have to start even before you have a single visitor of traffic. I want companies to think through uh, that first time buyer experience, because if you don't, the traffic you do end up sending will be much, much less effective at actually ordering and, and driving revenue for you. Yeah, awesome. I guess brands don't immediately think on e-commerce sites, you have to plan exactly how the customer flows through the user experience. For instance, I used to manage an ice cream shop and it was very clear we had to put up particular guardrails so that we, when the line wrapped around the door, we wanted to not block the entrance. And there, are, it's very obvious in a physical store product placement, like how how does a person experience where they're walking? That's not first to mind when interacting with an e-commerce. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes um, what your customers naturally want to do is often not the same as what you want them to do. And you want them to do what you want them to do, because this is your business and your store and you know your profit margin and you know the order size you're looking to achieve. One of my first consulting clients was a company that was a frozen food company. And frozen food, if you don't know, is very heavy <laughs> to ship and requires dry ice and is expensive to ship. And so we really needed to sell a, like the right amount of product to make every box worthwhile to send to our customers. And our customers, if left to their own devices, they would have been happy just to spend like 25 or 30 bucks and hit submit and check out. And um, for us, that would just be a huge money loser. And so we really had to guide them. We wanted them to build a minimum $100 box or more. And we actually succeeded in, in over the long haul getting to a $125 average order value. But in order to accomplish that, it's like, guess what? Nobody wants to go add $100 of items into their cart on the first visit to a site when they are still learning about the brand and figuring it out. So you have to offer someone a really attractive offer. And we, we realized that we could give you $50 off your first box, you get $100 worth of product for only 50. And um, we were subscription only. So like you were automatically going to get those items reordered in a month. Um, and you could certainly cancel at any time, but we gave you a really generous offer up front to get you started. 
people took us up on that offer. Not only did they build a $100 box, they would actually build a $125 box on average. And we had a 65% retention rate. And so over time, you know, when it came for their second purchase, they, they paid full price, you know, that, that initial customer joint offer was gone. But, um, we really found that like the difference between having that offer in place and telling the user exactly what to do, build a $100 box, you will unlock this offer. If you do that, you know, that was the difference between having a cost, a cost of acquisition that was like, $70 per new customer versus having a cost of customer acquisition that was like $350. And sometimes, you know, folks in finance would say, well, can't we just lose that $50 offer? Can't we lose the new customer join offer? Let's just not offer that anymore. And I was like, well, do you want to pay 350 bucks for every new customer or do you want to pay 70 bucks? (laughs) And usually they'd say, well, actually we want to pay 70 bucks. So, um, <laughs> and so we kept that offer at live for a very long time, but that's sort of, that's kind of where the rubber hits the road. That's, a, that's one of my best sort of tips and techniques for, um, you know, a shortcut to driving performance. And I don't know if Kate has other tips or techniques that she sees on the Amazon or third-party marketplace side that are also, you know, similarly effective at, at unlocking performance at the earlier stage. Yeah, I really love that you talked about this, Rachel, because a lot of CPG companies in particular, they create retail packaging and then they want to throw it on Amazon or or any marketplace and be like, oh, yeah, this will sell and it'll be fine. And so many times they're losing money every time they drive a customer for that, you know, $20 package. Um, And so this is just one thing I wanted to, you know, drive home is really evaluate your economics and that like that that model that you're looking at, because um, you need to make sure you're breaking in that Amazon fee, your um, marketing spend and like any, and your cost of goods. And you need to make sure that whatever pack size that you're getting customers to, to buy um, will cover all of your costs and hopefully make you some money. Just something I wanted to just like exclamation mark on to what you just said, Rachel, and just really thinking about how can you drive those order values up and make it really clear that, you know, it's a better deal if you buy more perhaps because, um, you know, maybe it's better for your margin still and try to get that that purchase. Amazon and e-commerce, in most cases, we see variety packs are the best sellers. It's not surprising because it's an easier sell to make of, okay, well, I might be buying six boxes, but at least each box is a different flavor. And that way you can get your order value up and it's still somewhat reasonable to ask your customer to purchase. When you're selling on e-commerce, it's like you're creating a little world. You know, you're creating this little world where like someone's coming into it and you have very limited amount of time where they're going to make their decision. You know, they need to like land into your little world, your experience, whether that's they search something and they see your product listing on Amazon and they're evaluating it, or they click on some kind of digital touch point and now they're on your website. And it's like, you have like, you know, 10 seconds, like, you know, depending on some people bounce immediately. So of the people that stay, maybe you have 30 seconds for them to just really take in like, what is this? Why should I buy this? What's going on here? What's unique about it? Um, can I get a really good deal as a first time buyer? You know, who else buys this? What are people saying? What are the benefits of it? And so I find that like continually iterating how you merchandise that, how you, what, what you're sort of leading with in terms of guiding people in um, and just, just really doing everything you can to, to, to create, you know, a perfect storm of people being that results in people saying, you know what, this is a no brainer. This is awesome. I'm going to do this now. <laughs> that's, that's what you're trying to get to. And so it's, it's unique for every product, but um, regardless of where you're selling, you have to do that mental legwork for your customer. Um, and you have to continue iterating it. Otherwise, you know, you'll just continue to have lower than lower than average e-commerce rates if you don't do that work. So. Yep. Totally. 
Rachel, thank you so much for those tips and tricks, great system tracking that can be built in and really needs to be thought through. Kate, what are some tips and tricks to launching on Amazon if a brand decides to do that or any third-party seller? The biggest thing that I want to drive home, especially with folks who are just starting out, is being really intentional about your keyword selection when you're doing keyword research. So the tool that we use is Helium 10. It's pretty affordable if you want to take a look at that. And Really, what it'll give you is you just put in, you know, any competitors or relevant products and it'll spit out all the keywords that they're searching and showing up for. Oh, wow. It's super, super powerful and helpful. And we talk to so many clients who want to go immediately to their main one. They're like, we want to go for healthy snacks or we want to go to like these really, really big, broad categories. Start smaller. Go for those long tail niche keywords that people will convert at a very high rate for you because you specifically offer that one thing. And do that as you start building up relevancy because those costs per clicks will be lower. Um, It'll be easier for you to drive that sale. So you'll convert higher. And then it'll help you start building up relevancy as you want to attack these larger keywords. You know, everybody thinks that they want to go for the big ones. And so I would say start smaller and go for what's really relevant and make sure that your product listings are set up properly. So keywords product listing content optimization, it's kind of like the hashtag of searching. And when you go to a hashtag, you're going to kind of like a room. There's a room for healthy snacks. There's a room for vegan. There's a room for cheese sauce. And so you want to start small. You want to be a big fish in a small pond. You want to start with a smaller room where there's not that much competition and you can really start to own your experience and get a sense of how your customers interact with your product on this third-party marketplace. Really, start to get a feel before moving on to a bigger room. Yeah, exactly. And just and think of it as, you know, if, if, if we use that analogy, you're going in and is it easier to win over a smaller room or is it easier to win over a room of, you know, hundreds of people who don't know you if you're trying to make friends or, you know, whatever it is totally. that you're trying to do. Yeah, so totally um, start kind of small and, and win those. And then once you start getting some uh, confidence in, in this analogy, then start going after the bigger ones. So I think that's one of the biggest things that we see. And this is true for your advertising spend when you're ready to do that. And it's also true for your product listings and your content. When Rachel was talking about SEO organic versus paid, the product listing is actually the SEO. <laughs> that's kind of everything. It's your title, it's your bullet points, it's your description, and then it's your backend details that are underlying that, which determine which categories you fall in, which filters show up. If anybody wants to get kind of a uh, a direction to the link to get your flat file to, to, you know, fill all these things out, then feel free to shoot me an email and I can send that link over to you. They hide it so that it's harder to find, but there are a lot of additional backend details that you can add in from an SEO perspective if you do it that way. That's kind of the foundation for everything. You want to make sure you're searchable even before putting your ad spend on top of that. So that's foundations. And then you start layering on advertising with, you know, on Amazon, off Amazon. And I will add in review generation. So I think almost everybody knows that reviews are an important part of the game. Your first 20 to 25, you can get through a number of ways. You can get through your email list if you have direct consumer. You can get it through your friends and family. But we really don't recommend even starting advertising until you have that base of of reviews because you just won't convert. Nobody wants to buy an untested product and be that first guinea pig. So that's kind of the start. That is so insightful. Yeah. (laughs) It's super important because why, why, why throw money on that if you know, you're not giving them any reason to buy at that point? There are some little tips and tricks to get that first group. And then once you get that, to that level, 
go ahead and start spending and and getting some cool traffic to your page. And then once you're kind of going, there is a request a review button on all Seller Central orders. So as you see the orders come through, just click that button and it'll raise your review rate from sub 1% unprompted to about 4% using this technique. So I'll leave it at that. These are just, you know, little things that people who aren't really going into Amazon or are not familiar can very easily escape by because there's so many different things hidden in the platform that these are things that you should kind of just cover at a base level. To your point, Amanda, on pack sizing, just as a last touch, some of you guys might be doing perishable products. So as Rachel was saying, if you're selling ice cream or something that really requires a big package and foam liner and dry ice to really arrive there safely, you really just want to make sure that your pack size and your order value will compensate for all of those costs. And then really think through if you're selling a $100 box of food, how can you make it really compelling and interesting so that people can kind of get over that mental barrier of making that be their first purchase with a brand? Kate. Amazing. Uncovering the the hidden secrets of Amazon is even knowing something exists is so helpful for brands that are just starting out. So thank you so much for sharing that information. And Rachel and Kate, thank you for being on this podcast. I know this topic is actually super complicated and nuanced, and there is so much more for brands to uncover. And this is definitely a primer to D2C and I think has given listeners a lot more information than they had just 40 minutes ago. So thank you so much. I know you both really valuable resources to learning even more about this topic and do consulting yourself and how can people learn more and work with you? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to definitely make sure to just give our respective websites a shout out. The group that I consult under primarily, um, I started, it's called Leap Grow. And you can find me at leapgrow.co. That's L-E-A-P-G-R-O-W.co. And also you can find me on the Startup CBG Slack community, which I would recommend everyone join who's not on there already. I also happen to consult occasionally under the group that Kate is a part of called Right Side Up. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for th- thanks for making this space for this conversation, Amanda. And it was such a fun conversation with you, Rachel. Yes, yeah, so I work for Right Set Up and we have a whole Amazon business unit really just focused on third-party marketplaces and cracking the behemoth that's Amazon. So you can reach me directly at Kate, which is K-A-T-E at rightsideup.co. And I look forward to chatting with you guys. If you like what you heard and you're interested in learning more, sign up for our newsletter at startupcpg.com. Our newsletter lists all of our events. You can get involved by joining a Zoom happy hour. And we also share industry insights from the Startup CPG community. So you can learn more at startupcpg.com. We definitely want to have you involved. We have an active online community and these networking events are really fun. So perhaps you're even our next podcast guest.